This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Well, good morning everyone and welcome to RRR's Radiotherapy. We are RRR's Sunday morning medical and mental health program prescribed specifically for you in the privacy of your own home to treat all the things that might be ailing you. Now today it's uh, Dr Anabolics and Dr SK on duty here this morning. So you could think of us maybe like a couple of tablets taken orally to settle an anxious stomach. Or maybe imagine we're two tubes of ointment applied topically to calm the inflamed parts of your brain. Or if things are really intense, just think of us like a pair of intravenous drips. I know most people think of us somewhat like that. So good morning, SK. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Kent. How are you? Good morning. I prefer to think of myself as a suppository. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people take that view as well. So that's you. Now, this, this morning we're going to be meeting one of the co-founders of Melbourne, the Melbourne not-for-profit organisation Homeless of Melbourne, uh, Robbie Gillies, who's our guest, and he's coming to tell us all about their operation and how everyone can help. Dr SK is going to tell us about uh, the p- latest Pixar film, Inside Out, and pass his clinical, cynical eye over its contents, see whether he, what he thought about it. Have you had a good week? Oh, very good week, very busy week, uh, as it happens. Uh, school productions, I went to a school production of Hairspray last night, which is always fun. I hadn't seen it before, it's actually quite good. I, I thought you were going to say hair, then I thought they couldn't. They wouldn't do that at school. I'm quite sure. But no, hairs- hairspray it, was quite. Even gee- hairspray was uh, was quite uh, avant garde for uh, a couple oh. of Catholic schools putting on a production together. Fantastic, uh, and but, was uh, good value. Yeah, very good value. I quite enjoy a bit of musical theatre. Really, secret <laughs> that, that, that doesn't sound <laughs> like you at all. And you got some catch up for us this morning. Yeah, I do. Just in relation to the uh, new Victorian ten year mental health plan, the government goes through a consultation process every few years to generate planning for their next mental health service delivery period. Uh, nationally, these have been five-year plans typically, but in Victoria they're looking at uh, mapping out a roadmap for mental health for the next 10 years. And they've put up a series of uh, consultation papers on the web for community comment and with the Triple R audience being socially aware and mindful of these issues, I thought it might be wise this morning to put a call out and at least alert people to the possibility of contributing some ideas to mental health reform. I mean, uh, unfortunately, the government's timetable for seeking community consultation ends on September the 16th, so there's a narrow window. But there's a number of uh, discussion papers for different areas of mental health up on the net at the moment and they include you know my own specialty of geriatric psychiatry as well as uh, areas as diverse as alcohol and drug policy forensic mental health uh, housing and homelessness uh, physical health and mental illness uh, lgbti issues aboriginal torres strait islander issues uh, refugee and asylum seeker mental health which is really important uh, along our, along with suicide prevention and discussion papers and the reason it's important to contribute to these things is uh, unless they uh, pass, comment upon them, some really strange ideas can get through. And uh, looking at the aged person's mental health discussion paper, for example, mm. uh, a couple of the ideas up for discussion include the idea of ageless inpatient psychiatry wards. And this is a concept that was tried in the UK several years ago under the National Health Scheme, uh, where health bureaucrats got the idea into their heads that it was somehow ageist to have separate Uh, mental health inpatient units for older persons and in uh, a case of political correctness gone mad they abolished the age differentiation between admissions 
for adult and aged persons' mental health, with the perverse unintended consequence that, you know, frail 90-year-olds with dementia were put into the same wards as sort of young, drug-affected, aggressive males with uh, severe mental illness. So uh, unless you want ideas like that to take precedence, uh, comment upon them and uh, have your say online. We've talked about that issue around this uh, table before. It's uh, the age-old issue of the lumpers versus the splitters, and it's it's been going on since Adam was a boy about around different types of uh, institutions. For example, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, there was huge discussion about whether we should close down all the facilities that were um, providing housing for intellectually disabled people and put them into the uh, psychiatric uh, wards. There was those they were the splitters and they were the, as, as opposed to the lumpers who wanted them all in some other place. There was huge debate, and there's this happens all the time. Do you put people in different ages, different sexes, different um, how do you divide people or is it better to have uh, everybody you know, just looked at as people and with uh, people giving care to them, maintaining their wide skill base while they look after people? So it's a huge... I, I don't know what the answer to these things is, but it's, I, don't think it's, I don't think your that uh, plan there sounds like it's terribly workable. No, and there's, there's other ideas as well. T- uh, they're talking about raising the age limit for access to age services, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's to some extent in recognition of the fact that today, 65-year-olds, mm. and 65 has been traditionally the cut-off for transition to aged persons' mental health. But today's 65-year-olds ain't the 65-year-olds that grandpappy used to see. Mm-hmm. So <coughs> 65-year-olds, people still consider themselves relatively young mm. in the 21st century, mm. and they're talking about potentially raising the age limit to access age services to 70. And on the face of it, that might not be a bad idea, uh, but when you think about the pressure that adult psychiatric services are under... Mm for adult services to have to take on another cohort of five-year people uh, would really overburden an already stretched system. So if you have strong ideas or indeed intelligent insights into how Victoria's mental health services should be run, visit www.mentalhealthplan.vic.gov.au There's uh, brief submissions that you can do in the form of a 140-character tweet or you can put in a more formal uh, written submission uh, with a, a closing date on September the 16th. And which is the department that's running this? Who's actually who, who will you be talking to when you do that? It's the Department of Health and Human Services. And, you know, every time there's a change of government, they change the name of this mm. department. It used to be mm. DOH, uh, Department of Health under the previous government. Prior to that, it was DHS, the Department of Human Services. Now it's the Department of Health and human services. You can bank on the fact they'll have a new logo just for you, just so you can, you know, feel like if, if something's being done. Developed at great expense, yes. <laughs> Perhaps they'll combine them all and make them a border force. That seems oh. to be the... <laughs> Ooh, the border force. You wanted to talk about this, anabolics, didn't you? Well, look, I, ca- I, was, I was in town on Friday um, having lunch with a friend and I came out and there was, you know, they were blocking they were blocking Flinders Street intersection. And I thought, oh, bugger, the trams are all blocked up. What's happening? You know, and I sort of went through the usual sort of thing you do when there's protests in the city and think, oh, probably we should be protesting too. What are they protesting? You know, and then they, they look up and they would. It was an anti-racism and anti. Um, and I couldn't work. And I and I finally sort of worked out by looking what was happening and hearing what was being talked about. They were protesting. You know, the idea of uh, uh, um, uh, profiling and 
stop and searching for people who are visa overstayers and i couldn't quite believe it and uh it's 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 been the most monumental debacle it's had a huge you know the wave of kind of what the f is going on from the general public and from people on the far right and the far left combined what an amazing thing to do we spent 10 million dollars giving uniforms to uh, our bureaucrats from the immigration department with epaulets and and well they're, they're impressive new uniforms if you've seen them but uh, you know it's been commented that they're moving towards a paramilitary force. Mm. They're sort of heavily armed and uh, I've got friends in Customs and Border Protection who have been sort of required to do essentially paramilitary training over the last few months to try and bring them up to essentially military fitness and performance standards. Uh, But all this debacle came out of the blue on Friday afternoon, didn't it, with no uh, announcements or or heralding. Mm. I think I was saying to you outside, though, uh, you know, you can take the conspiracy theory view on this or you can take the view that if there are two uh, alternative explanations for a phenomenon, one of which involves stupidity, (laughs) then uh, stupidity is the likely explanation nine times out of ten. Go for it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Well, welcome back to Radiotherapy, and um, you're listening to Dr. Anna Bollocks and Dr. S.K. with the wonderful Kent on panel, and we've got a wonderful guest in the studio this morning. Uh, welcome, Robbie Gillies. How are you, Robbie? Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks Look, for having me on. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. Now, um, I met uh, Robbie when I uh, went into his uh, shop in town. You've got a shop called Homie in town, and there's a bit, I gather this is the end of quite a long journey for you and your two friends who have started this shop. Yeah, it I'd certainly I'd love is, it if yeah. you could tell us sort of the genesis of what happened and where things are now (laughs) okay it's a long story uh where should i begin um well we're actually coming up to our first birthday which is quite exciting for us so it all sort of began this time last year in 2014 um it started with one of the co-founders marcus crook um who on his lunch breaks in the city he's a retail worker um he used to go out and he started noticing that there are a lot of people who are doing it rough on the streets um he's a really compassionate guy um a really sort of humble guy i hope he won't be embarrassed by me saying this about him but um he is and uh, the story goes that he used to sit down with people who were living on the streets. Um, just He was really curious to just hear their story and um, to see if you know the negative stereotypes that he'd um, encountered throughout his life were true because um, mm-hmm. he just saw that it was a mounting problem. And what happened was he'd sit down and he'd chat and he's a pretty softly spoken guy and he'd just let them speak a lot. Um, and the things that he were hearing... Um, were really powerful to him and really changed his perception of homelessness and who these people are. The stories really humanised the issue for him. Um, And he decided that he needed to share the stories um, based off the success of the um, Facebook sensation Humans of New York. Mm. We've seen the power of storytelling and how effective it can be in changing attitudes and dissolving negative stereotypes in all sorts of different ways. So Marcus teamed up with his friend Nick Pierce um, and they took to Facebook and social media um, with people's consent. It's obviously a very sensitive issue being homeless um, and not a lot of people are happy to share their stories publicly, but some people are for a host of different reasons um, and those who were happy and consented to sharing their stories um, the stories would go up on Facebook and other social media sites um, and Marcus is a photographer as well so he'd take a picture um, and 
we always try and shine people in a positive sort of dignified way we don't really comment or commentate on the story at all we just post the picture and some quotes of the people um so this is how it all started this was august last year um and the facebook page just sort of took off so i think we've got about thirty thousand followers now it's all been organic growth um and that's where we came from just sharing the stories and the words of people experiencing homelessness um from there in december uh the team at homeless in melbourne um i I joined the team around this time and um the three of us uh did a, a we called it the street store it was in federation square in december um and the idea was to make receiving dignified and donating easier so the way well that was the mission that's um, what we wanted to achieve and the way we went about doing that was we created uh, paper coat hangers which we hung up around federation square and anyone in melbourne um, could come and they could hang any item of clothing and anyone could come and receive that clothing and then that sort of facilitated a discussion so people who were donating could then meet and chat with the person who was receiving their gift Um, and in that way it was quite dignified and it was quite easy Um, that was a massive success and we really loved that experience and we had so much positive feedback and it was something that was so new and different and we got thinking about how we could maybe take that sort of or those ethos and turn it into a permanent sort of project and the idea sort of came to us that let's create a clothing store that's not only for the homeless community it's not only generating money and revenue and making donating easier for people of melbourne but it's actually a store for those who are experiencing homelessness let's create an inclusive experience where people can be invited into a shopping center who are homeless who can come in who can be given priority treatment who can shop who don't have to feel intimidated because it's they're welcomed it's a store for them they can they obviously a lot of them don't have a lot of money um and fashionable clothing isn't really accessible for them um at times i don't want to stereotype people but that's unfortunately the truth um a lot of the time so we just wanted to create a store where we could welcome people in and they could shop for free and we could help them out um and we could just you know assist them in any other way and that's the way homey came to life and how did you get the actual storefront the storefront is in melbourne central yep, shopping that's center, right, melbourne in an central awesome position center. on the second floor if yeah, people are going into yeah. cbd yep. you should walk in and have a look at this shop it's fabulous it's a really well designed and well laid out shop how did you get hold of that shop oh we were just so lucky we had a bit of um media exposure when we ran a crowdfunding campaign for the idea and luckily someone who was doing real estate at Melbourne Central Shopping Centre saw it and felt compelled to offer her assistance and she got in contact with us and she offered us a heavily discounted rate and Melbourne Central have just been absolutely incredible to us in hosting us and Mm -hmm. making us feel very welcome and facilitating the project. Shout out to Melbourne Central. My God. Good on you guys. And and you've obliged, I guess, to meet your rental, even though it's low, you've got to meet your rental. How are you going? That's true. Yep. So (laughs) first and foremost, we try and be a sustainable business in ourselves. Um, That's, I think, what differentiates us from other charities in a lot of ways is that we're a social enterprise so we're we're a business with sound business strategy hopefully <laughs> and um clothes that people want you know um but the difference between us and another for-profit business is that we deliver our profit to the community as opposed to a for-profit business that would deliver their profit and their margins to their directors and their uh, shareholders so that's yeah the way we operate so was the stock in the shop is donated a, a lot of it is actually so there's probably um, 
um, three different uh, ways that we get clothing. Um, some of it's donated. So we have Stussy come in and they're absolutely awesome. They do drop-offs and we've got women's and men's clothing from Stussy. Snowgum donate clothing. Cotton On as well have been absolutely terrific. They donate a lot of jumpers um, and, and a host of other Melbourne brands have jumped on board and donate their clothing for free. Um, other, other streetwear brands who maybe don't have the resources to donate for free offer their clothes at wholesale prices to us. So we purchase them and we still are able to make good margins on them for the community and the third way is um, we produce our own clothing so we have a clothing range called homie um, and it's a streetwear range and that's also quite profitable for us we get um, shirts uh, and we do our own printing on them a couple of questions yeah, for yeah. you i mean uh, <laughs> firstly how do you how do you publicize the existence of your store to the demographic that you're targeting because although second yep. floor of melbourne central is a prime retail location i, yep. I can't imagine that it's a, a location that gets much walk by traffic from the homeless population yes so that's, that's an right. interesting point for, for sure yeah and secondly if you're getting uh, clothing donated by high-end uh, brands such as Stussy, mm-hmm. how do you stop the general public simply taking advantage of the fact that there are cheap um, brand name clothes for sale? I mean, how do you ensure that the money is actually, the clothing is actually t- received by the demographic that it's targeted to? Yeah, the, the great question. So, um I guess I'll start with your second question. Um, the, the clothes are all available at normal retail prices and that enables us to then pass it on for free to people who are experiencing homelessness. So well, we don't you know, get exploited by the public at all. They come in and they shop and it's for normal prices. We're a normal business. We're a normal clothing shop. But people come in and we had a guy yesterday and he said, um, oh, you know, $50 share, that's a bit rich. Can you do a discount? And I said, well, I can't give you a discount, but, you know, with that money, you're actually also donating a shirt to someone who's experiencing homelessness. So it's not just, you know, it is a normal retail price, but you're also doing good as you, as you purchase. And that really resonates with a lot of people. Um, and then I think uh, the first question was, uh, how do people who are experiencing homelessness access the service? Um, so what we do is... Uh, um, we're, pr- we're pretty aware that the three of us, the founders, we're not social workers. Um, I, I do have a medical background. Um, uh, I, uh, d- yeah, do have a medical background, but we can't be social workers. We can't offer clinical care. So we're very careful and we go through services. So we invite different uh, non-profits who, are d- who have clients who are homeless to come into store monthly on our VIP shopping days. Um, and so we've had the big issue. We've had Front Yard. We've had Melbourne City Mission. And we've got Quinn Housing coming in in September. Um, they're invited in. They bring staff in and they bring their clients in. Um, and in that way, I think it, I think it works on two good levels. Um, we're able to... We're able to cater towards the people who are truly in need um, because we don't have the background in social work. We can't really identify 100% correctly who is in most need of our service. So we call on our friends who do have the expertise at those organisations to identify people who would really benefit from our service and to bring them to us. And in another way, uh, it's helpful because sometimes we get people who come in off the streets who have heard about us and who are really in need of clothing. And we're able to say to them, you're absolutely most welcome welcome to use our service that's what we exist for we'd absolutely love to help you please go through this service who are running the vip day this month and it's good because then they get in touch with the service they get the clinical care that they deserve and need and um it just it it works out 
really well for everyone. Yeah. Do you have people coming in saying, um, this, I've just understood what your store is about and I'll give you $100 for a shirt <laughs> instead of 50 I mean, um, people should be donating. I've got to say. Oh, sometimes people load up and they might buy a second shirt. Um, sometimes people might round up. It might be a $55 purchase and they'll round up to 60 We have a sliding scale uh, incentive system. So if you spend under $50, we donate or you donate um, uh, socks, jocks or a beanie. If you spend above $50, you donate a T-shirt with your purchase. If you spend above $75, you donate a jumper. And if you spend above $100, you donate a warm jacket. So we try and incentivize people to give a little bit more so that others can receive a little bit more. Um, and that's pretty much the system. But Now, yeah. there's a wonderful video on your uh, Facebook page of yeah. uh, somebody doing wonderful haircuts. Is this on oh, your on yeah. your VIP days? That that's people can right, have a makeover yeah. as well, can they? Yeah, they can, yeah. Tell the, us about that. Um, yeah, so Nas is the, a street barber in Melbourne. That's the way he brands himself, the street barber. Um, he's a great guy. He's extremely compassionate. Um, he's an ex-heroin addict and he lived on the streets for many years and now he's off the streets and he's been able to make a living for himself cutting hair and he cuts hair six days a week to get by and on the seventh day he goes around the streets and he does free haircuts for anyone experiencing homelessness. Uh, he's been a great supporter of ours. He was involved in the street store we ran in December in Federation Square and we invite him along and when he's able to get along to the VIP days he's there from you know midday till very late uh, cutting hair and just having a, a friendly conversation and just sharing his love. He's an incredible guy and yeah it's great to have his support it's wonderful. The, the video shows people going from really sort of ragged, long beard, shaggy hair, yep. sitting in the chair yep. and just looking the bomb at the end of an, you know, an hour of fast video. They look fantastic. Yeah, and, then and they you walk can see the out big and smile on their face and they feel great. Oh, just... we've had people literally dancing around the store, just they can't wipe the smile off their face. It's really it's really powerful and it's it's so rewarding for all of us who have put in a lot of hard work and a lot of time and it's been a big team, you know, there's been a lot of contributors from everyone to the big brands down to the volunteers and on those days it's really special for everyone to meet the people who are receiving um, to hear their stories and to see them walk out literally with a smile on their face it's now, awesome yeah, a lot of your staff are volunteers or get paid very very little anyway yep yep that's right um, so uh, the, the, the store essentially was a pop-up venture to test the financial viability of it for the first few months um, and we were pretty upfront and transparent about that we did a crowdfunding uh in, we crowdfunded in April to raise enough money to get the store off the ground and we weren't taking any money at that point because we were testing the financial viability and now that we're moving into the next phase, we've just had our lease extended. Um, we're going to start paying our workers because you can't get people to work for free. It's not sustainable and as I said, first and foremost, we need to be a sustainable business. Um, so we're bringing in salaries for proper retail staff and hopefully we can extend that in, onto the homeless community and we're really hopeful that we can start training some people experiencing homelessness because at the end of the day it, 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 is, it is a really um, touching experience for us and for others to come in and to be clothed um, and then we want to try and break the poverty cycle also in a more meaningful and profound way through employment, um, through skills, education and... So maybe people. you could start by mirroring the Seven Eleven business model for paying this stuff but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when, Let's not. <laughs> with, with this idea when it, yeah. when it developed, I mean... It, 
it, it seems a terrific idea and it seems to be working for you. Was it, was it sparked by knowledge of similar ventures overseas or is this something that's truly unique and a one-off? And, and if that's the case, is the scope to expand it and make it a more national sort of model with collaboration of the NGOs and so forth? Yeah, yeah. We all love social enterprise, the three of us. Um, we've been following the scene for a while. Um, for the listeners or you guys, I don't know if you're aware of the social enterprise. Could you call it a movement? Who knows? But there's a lot of businesses that are fusing business strategy with non-for-profit um, and they're popping up all over Melbourne. Um, it's it's quite well done in the hospitality industry. You'll see a lot of cafes and there's a non-profit called Street who offer free uh, coffees at normal prices and they pass on profit to the homeless community. But uh, we're not aware of anyone who's really doing it in the fashion industry. So I think that we've had a lot of publicity because hopefully we're sort of pioneering social enterprise in a, in a fashion context. Um, but yeah, no, we're just pretty excited about it. We're hoping that it can expand. Um, we're going to enter into discussions this week with Chadston and it's really exciting. Hopefully we can get a second store up and running. Um, we've certainly had interest in, um, scaling it nationally. Um, people from all over Australia have been in contact with us and we believe that the the strategy the business model the branding can be replicated anywhere there's a, a homeless community well the the social enterprise notion the social scene in this regard is fueled by people power so um if you have a, a business it's, it's it's great for us to be asking businesses like like the chadston people who run chadston or the other and, and big firms to concentrate on your triple bottom line not just <laughs> yep. profit but also your social and, and uh, environmental impact for sure now um the way that translates into sustainability is for, for people like me and you and everyone listening to actually notice that that's happening with the companies that we're put, giving our money to and supporting those companies. So if we say, um, you know, Joe's, uh, Joe's Umbrellas, I want to buy my umbrellas from Joe's Umbrellas because Joe makes has a triple bottom line focus and is involved with training, looking after the environment and being sustainable, as also makes good umbrellas then shop with Joe's. That's how, that's how this stuff works. So I think that's, that's why we all, we all can play a role. And something like your shop, people can go in, support it. Can you donate to Homeless of Melbourne? Is that still on your website? Can yeah, you? yeah, you absolutely can. Um, we're a deductible gift recipient. We're a registered Australian charity. And, yeah, by all means you can. Um, but, again, we try to make donating easier. So come down and even just buy a shirt, have a browse. It's a fun way to donate to charity. How much of this... How much of your time does yeah. this tie up? I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by the medical students of today. I mean, when I went through, it's all I could do to hold down a part-time job at Safeway. Yeah. You're running a whole social <laughs> enterprise business on the side in addition to doing your medical degree. How do you do this? Oh, I'm not going to lie. It takes up almost all of my day. Uh, but, look, we wouldn't do it if we didn't love it. We absolutely would not. That's not a cliche saying. That's that's nothing. But we just have so much fun, the team. Um, you know, we've got a Facebook message thread the homeless and melbourne boys and it's going off constantly every 10 minutes there's a message there and there's a new meeting there's someone to meet um you don't get any time off but wouldn't have it any other way i don't think i couldn't imagine a life where i'm not busy and um it's so rewarding i mean what else could you do to just feel good about being alive and 
I don't know. It's, We're a, all it's just... a better high than booze, which is what <laughs> I think a lot of our generation was tied up in doing with all those hours that these guys are doing something, you know, In useful. retrospect, you're quite right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Robbie, um, thank you thank you so much for coming in. Oh, um, thanks so much for having me. All, all the best. Um, if our listeners want to support this fabulous enterprise and keep it sustainable, keep it open and keep the Chadston store open when it opens, hopefully. Yeah. Good on you, Chadston Shopping Centre, yeah. for making this survivable. Um, please support the shop or go online, have a look, uh, share it on your Facebook to get the message out and um, put it on social media anywhere you can and um, make this work because we, our audiences, as we found out over the last two weeks, are awesome. Our listeners to Radiotherapy are awesome. They support <laughs> us in every way, shape and form, financially, and um, they they are people who will love your shop and love oh, your idea. Terrific. Well, thanks in advance to anyone who's looking to support us. So I love think to we'll see you down. Drop into a... store. Um, we've got the founders are there every day, so even oh, just for a chat. The guys are there. Oh, you, you, yeah, one of us one is, of there is there every the day. Yeah, usually yeah. all three of us. That's <laughs> my, And I, I remember there's a lovely board you can write notices to people, can't you? There's yes. A, you can yep. stick um, yeah. supportive notices. Yeah, it's, it's like the pizzas in New York. I don't know if anyone saw it on Facebook, but you could go into a pizza shop in New York and you could buy a, a slice of pizza and you could pass one on to someone experiencing homelessness and you'd put a little sticky note up on the board and it would say one pizza. So that's the way we operate. You buy, you buy a shirt and we write one shirt on a little sticky note and we put it up on our wall of support. So come in and have a browse of the wall. Fantastic. Well, all, all the best, Robbie, and uh, to, to Nick and Marcus as well and all the other people working down there. Uh, all, send you all our best. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Now, we've got a fascinating um, report from USK about a movie that you've seen, Inside Out, and I guess we should probably think that it's probably going to contain spoilers. Is that is that uh, oh, Look, right? it contains plot spoilers, but as far as a Pixar movie goes, there's not yeah, really much plot sure. to focus on, so uh, mm. so desensitise yourself to that. But yeah. I gather you saw this film as well, Anabolic, and, and, and you took an interest in it because you're recently the recipient of a new grandchild. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you Which know. is amazing for someone of 29, you know, you think about it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It does make you think about behaviour and babies and growing up and for yeah, sure. Yeah, and, you know, I, I watched these movies, you know, with my six-year-old and uh, I was impressed not only by the storyline and the way in which this film engages you, but in which it can serve as quite a valid but dumbed-down model for how child children develop in certain aspects, certainly in terms of their, their cognitive schemas, the way in which they view the world, the way in which they manage uh, conflict on an intra-psychic level uh, with competing emotions. And in many ways, if you've got a kid who's receptive to it, it would be quite a good way to try and educate your kids through this passive exposure to the concepts of how emotions compete. Uh, at least I was hoping that my six-year-old would take that from it. Uh, his, his main comment on the film after watching it was disappointment that the protagonist was a girl and said, uh, why couldn't that couple have had a boy as well? You know, that was what he took home from the film. But Inside Out uh, follows the early childhood experiences of uh, a young female protagonist called Riley. And when we first meet her, she's you know literally just been born and she's wrapped in swaddling clothes and when she opens her eyes and first experiences anything within the world a little figure inside her head materialises and that figure is uh, a female character that's represented as joy and the first emotion that Riley experiences when she opens her eyes is to see her parents smiling down at her and that engenders a social smile in Riley and her, the first conscious 
emotion that she experiences is, is that of joy. She just springs into being de novo, and it's uh, akin to the dawning of consciousness in this young child's head. Uh, joy doesn't last very long. <laughs> She's shortly joined by a number of competing emotions. You know, when her needs as a young infant aren't met, sadness materialises when she first cries, and sadness is uh, depicted as a little blue, somewhat overweight, downcast figure that competes with joy for uh, attention and conscious expression inside Riley's head. Uh, the emotion of fear then joins as well and the fear character uh, the purpose that he serves is supposedly to keep riley safe because fear has survival value in uh, in young infants and human beings and even in adults you know certain things are worthy of fear because they are dangerous so it's a danger avoidance mechanism Uh, another emotion called disgust arrives that's a, a green emotion whose uh, who's survival role is to keep uh, Riley from being poisoned. And uh, disgust uh, takes a while to, to mature herself because, uh, you know, one of the objects that's worthy of disgust throughout Riley's young childhood is, is the, uh, the expression of broccoli in, <laughs> in many forms, which engenders disgust. And then there's, uh, there's finally an emotion of anger that, uh, that arrives. So we're led to believe that very young children, and Riley for most of the film is aged about 11, their conscious uh, cognitive state is dominated by competing emotions rather than by reason. And those emotions are joy, sadness, fear, disgust and anger. And when Riley experiences the world in this film, she generates memories a memory is uh, visualised as a, as a large ball about the size of a bowling ball that has a different colour according to the emotion that the memory is associated with. And emotions are generated throughout the day. At the end of the day, the, uh, the memories that have been generated are sort of triaged and filtered and downloaded, and some of them are sent off via a long conveyor belt-type apparatus into uh, central data storage or, or long-term memory. Mm. So again, on a daily basis, we have a number of experiences, anabolics, mm. some of them like uh, this conversation you don't feel worthy of remembering long term so it's it's ditched from your short term memory at the end Never. of the day other more core experiences are downloaded to long term storage so for for important events and we see uh, throughout the early part of the film the the core schema the core cognitive hooks that Riley attaches various memories to. She uh, sends her memories off to one of a number of uh, personality islands that form core components of her being. And the 11-year-old Riley attaches a great amount of importance to a number of activities and concepts, uh, one of which is Honesty Island. She's got a core view of herself as being a very honest person. So there's a core construct within her mind that relates to her being honest. There's another important area of her, of her life that's referred to as Family Island. There's Friendship Island that deals with her interpersonal relationships with her peers. There's something called Hockey Island because she's a great ice hockey player and something called Goofball Island as well, that side of her personality that values capricious fun with no sort of cognitive overlay or sense of responsibility attached. And these uh, five 
core cognitive domains in Riley's mind are connected by a beautiful metaphor called the train of thought, (laughs) uh, which is literally a train that passes through and connects the different islands and brings different aspects of uh, their function to cognitive awareness. Now, all is going uh, really quite well with uh, Riley up until the age of 11, and at this point her life changes. Her, Her family move from rural Minnesota to a metropolitan San Francisco and this poses a number of challenges to Riley's core concepts. Initially when she arrives she doesn't like her new house, Uh, she learns that her father's business is in trouble and uh, a number of her core concepts come under threat. Uh, new memories that she generates within this new house begin to be tainted by the emotion of sadness. So joy being the dominant emotion in Riley's life to this point, uh, it's a major life stress for her, and the emotion of sadness steps forward to challenge the dominance of joy in Riley's life. So more and more of the memories that are being uh, generated are tinged blue with sadness rather than yellow with joy. One of the things I liked about this, uh, Disney can go off the rails into sentimentality sometimes, and the one thing I liked about the, the things you're describing is that they were ordinary, everyday events. This wasn't a, a film about uh, anything scary happening. The girls, at the, new, the girls and boys at the new school she went to weren't terrible people. They were just ordinary kids. And it was, it was kind of depicting a normal set of changes that a kid would go through. This was not a horrendous change. This was a normal life change that you know kids go through all the time. Dad, dad having trouble with his work, um, the furniture being delayed, getting into the house, uh, so precious objects aren't around. This is not out of the realms of fantasy. This is a normal, a normal kid reacting to slightly unusual but very commonplace situations. Which I, I love that about this film. It didn't go over the top with mean people or nasty people. It was this was how you react to life. And look, as, as adults, it's very easy for us to lose that perspective on how kids view the world. But if you think back to when we were sort of that primary school sort of age, our thinking was all very black and white. You know, emotions were either fully expressed uh, at once or not, and a competing emotion would take its place. We, were, we weren't tolerant at that age emotionally of shades of grey, of viewing both good and, as, and bad aspects of the situation at the one time, and this film illustrated really well to me how a child's perception of events can colour emotions. And throughout the film it shows a maturational process as well. Ultimately we get to see that uh, one emotion-coloured uh, bowling ball doesn't actually have to be all joy or all sadness. Certain events can be tinged with joy and sadness and anger at the same time, and you start generating multicoloured memory balls by the end of the film, which is sort of uh, the point at which Riley takes a developmental step and enters a more adult uh, stage of her cognitive development. Dr. S.K., I'm going to read you uh, a little piece of a review that was uh, put out after Inside Out came out by one of the uh, national national critique people. I was so gripped by Inside Out that when I attended the media screening that my mind could commit nothing to memory beyond images that would bring on a strange mixture of laughter and near apoplectic weeping. So I bought a ticket to an advanced screening and along with a few hundred preteens watched the film again. The second time around I laughed less, although increasingly deeply, and cried more and finally decided that Inside Out is, along with Lars von Trier's Melancholia, 
one of the most nuanced and elegant filmic depictions of depression I have ever seen. It's also, for my money, one of Pixar's finest film, if not their best, which is a big statement. What do you think? Did it did it nail? the emotional aspect of sadness and depression this movie but certainly nailed sadness and made that understandable i wasn't convinced that the protagonist was actually depressed sure. and, uh, and i think to conflate inside out with a film such as melancholia it's a big stretch. drawing a yeah. long bow mm. which is a terribly depressing film melancholia mm. melancholia if you haven't seen it there were some wonderful elements of 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 joy within the film though and there's some terrific asides like uh, the dream state for example you know the the, the main yes. emotions who are present during conscious awareness they view they look towards the end of the day as a time where they can turn off kick back and watch tv and uh, <laughs> dreams are presented as you know vegging out in front of the television fabulous <laughs> so the the plot of uh, inside out is is advanced by something akin to an industrial accident that occurs in the control room of the mind uh, joy and sadness whilst struggling for possession of an emotion to incorporate into long-term storage gets sucked out of the control room of the mind and uh, deposited uh, in a maze of long-term memory, uh, leaving anger, fear and disgust in charge of Riley's consciousness. Uh, So with joy and sadness removed, anger, fear and disgust to the fore, Riley's conscious mental state turns towards one of rebellion. She feels that uh, all of her happy memories were incorporated in Minnesota, She's very angry and fearful in her new circumstance and as far as her conscious awareness is concerned, the way to start incorporating new happy memories is to go back to Minnesota. So that's her problem solving. She acts out towards her parents and moves towards getting on a bus to go back. And really joy and sadness for the rest of the film are battling against time to return to conscious awareness and to to have a more integrated persona between them to try and head off this terrible adverse outcome for for Riley. So joy and sadness find themselves uh, wandering the maze of long-term memory inside Riley's brain and uh, as Riley herself becomes under more stress in the external world we see a number of core aspects of her personality begin to crumble as she matures really, as she moves from this very early life stage emotional way of perceiving and and relating to the world into a more adult frame of reference. And the first of her core personality uh, concepts to crumble is goofball island, you know, that sense of aimless fun where you could just enjoy yourself without having a goal or a reason for doing so. We then see uh, friendship island begin to crumble as she loses contact with her her friends from Minnesota that she keeps in touch with uh, via Skype. During their passage through uh, long-term memory storage, joy and sadness encounter a number of mind workers. And, you know, for me, the sort of... uh, (laughs) Maintenance guys within the mind were one of the more fascinating and engaging parts of the film. We found mind workers whose job it was to uh, navigate around long-term memory and sort of suction out useless or redundant memories and jettison them into a pit. Uh, You know, they're they're removed from long-term storage and ditched, you know, like uh, fourth-grade French, for example, in (laughs) your or mine mind's uh, anabolics. We no longer need it, so it's it's no longer in long-term memory. And they're sent to 
to a memory dump in Inside Out. They see a, a dream production studio, which is really like a television studio where different elements are combined, put through a, a reality filter, and actors portray the action, which is to appear in somebody's dream with the age of a with the aid of a director as well. Uh, we enter the strange and uh, uncomfortable world of abstract thought where uh, conscious emotions are disassembled and reassembled in abstract ways, made two-dimensional and so forth. Uh, we also enter the unconscious, where our deepest uh, fears reside. And, you know, like many of us, uh, Riley's unconscious is populated by a giant clown. <laughs> Clowns really scary. <clears throat> and when the clown emerges from uh, the unconscious and bursts into Riley's dreams, at one point that's uh, a trigger for her waking up, because it's like a nightmare when her unconscious and repressed negative impulses rise to the surface. Also deep within uh, the the maze of Riley's mind, they stumble across an imaginary friend called Bing Bong, who's a a key character in the film. He's largely elephant, but, uh, you know, he served a purpose earlier in Riley's state of development where she would interact on a daily basis with this imaginary friend. And as she's grown older, the role of this imaginary friend has diminished and he's left to uh, wander in a, in a lonely fashion through the corridors of the mind. Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful portrayal. Yeah. Mm. So, so Riley's shift from Minnesota to San Francisco, it, it's a threat to her personality. Uh, joy and sadness do eventually return to the control room of the mind and it's at this point where the five emotions realise that they don't have to exist in isolation, that they can influence each other to form the expression of of a single memory. So once joy and sadness learn to coexist, the control panel that uh, the emotions use to run the mind and conscious awareness gets revamped by mind workers. They get issued with a brand new control panel, much like the one that Kent's operating now, (laughs) with a variety of new, new nuanced levers and buttons and we see some some great uh, signs on that control panel there's a big red button marked puberty and they want they think oh i wonder what that button does and say oh probably nothing important but you know it's the sign for disaster so Whilst being a really enjoyable movie as well, this this film does actually say quite a lot at a basic level about how our model of memory actually works. And from a neuroscience basis, it's it's reasonably accurate. And I believe they did use uh, you know cognitive neuroscientists as consultants when they were working uh, on this film. But it really illustrates uh, something called the associative network model of memory. And uh, this uh, neuroscience model posits that discrete uh, units of knowledge, if you like, are actually stored within individual nodes or locations within our brain. Uh, so there might be the uh, the learning French node within our brain and the doing psychiatry node within our brain. And when we're forced to do psychiatry in French, there's an activating link that's formed between these two representative structures. 
So when a node is stimulated, when a memory node is stimulated, it becomes available to conscious awareness. And that's exactly what we see in the film. When anger is stimulated, uh, we become consciously aware of that and anger takes control. Uh, These memory nodes in all of us can be stimulated by external cues, so things that happen in our environment. They can also be stimulated by internal uh, thought states as well. And when a, a node is activated, it tends to then, through a, a network of association, activate adjacent and related memory nodes. So when uh, something sad happens, for example, that might activate a memory of something else that happened to us that was sad in our past. So it's a great way of illustrating what really is quite a complex neurobiochemical concept in a way that's accessible not only to adults but to very young kids as well and you'd like to think that our kids when watching this might get some idea of how their own emotions struggle to uh, take possession of their conscious beings from time to time who would have thought that it was disney who in 2015 would still be about the only studio who doing anything complex and nuanced about human emotion everybody else seems to have sold out to guns and violence and zombies and here we are watching this beautiful interplay of um life and transition and growth and humanity are portrayed in a film like this. I, I love this film. I loved um, Toy Story Part 3 as well. I cried like a baby through both of them. And um, uh, actually I cried like an adult woman and an adult man cry. So they're just not to be stereotyping babies. Um, uh, and it was a beautiful. Uh, I think that both those stories, Toy Story 3 and this one, highlight I think the way only Pixar and perhaps only animated characters can, the way the bittersweetness of change and how it has to, you know, the, the past, our past has to be let go and kept at the same time. How new things have to be tried and embraced and feared at the same time. Beautiful complexity around that stuff. So I I, I, it was a great, um, great film, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad it sounds like it was a really good. Uh, it was terrific. Well it's one, it's one you can rewatch and get something new out of every time. And in another bittersweet moment, Anabolics, it's time for you and I to part again for it another is, week. It is how we cope. Thank you so much to Kent for panelling for us today, SK, and for um, Rob Gillies for coming in and telling us all about the wonderful Homie. There'll be stuff on our Facebook page about all this stuff. And um, thanks again to our listeners for last week for supporting us so much through Radiothon. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned for the wonderful Einstein and Go-Go. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R. 102.7. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R. 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.